Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, for, through the first half, the first part of 1 Timothy, uh, we have been examining the biblical structures of the church, how a church is to be ordered and organized and uh, the way we're supposed to put it together. We have looked at how we've been called to stand for biblical fidelity. We've answered the question, what is a woman to do in the church? What is a pastor to be? What is a deacon to be? And as we've examined each of these things, it has been evident that these things are directly contrary to modern culture today. And frankly, many times these things are hard to do. They're not easy. Recognize that as we have walked through them, it is easy for us to question, why is this a big deal? Why does it matter who we put in charge or who we place into different positions or really even how we structure it? As long as we're getting together around the word of God and as long as we love Jesus, what's the big deal? Well, Timothy in this, Paul in this next section to Timothy answers that question, why it's so important for us to follow biblical roles in the church and demand certain character in our leaders. And so in this next transitional section in 1 Timothy, Paul works through this. And we must follow these instructions and demand certain character of our leaders for two important reasons that we find in this text. So let's read this text together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. In this section, we see two reasons why we ought to focus and obey and heed the commands we've seen so far. Because without question, these issues we've discussed the last month have been very hard. They go Directly contrary to our culture's egalitarian demands in the role of women. They've, they've opened old wounds, frankly, as we've discussed what a pastor and deacon are to be. But we've done so for good reason. Because we must stand for these biblical guides for the two reasons. The vital importance of the church and the great mystery of godliness. Let me explain these two reasons. First, the vital importance of the church. This is verses 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that, so that uh, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of God, the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So for whatever reason, Paul was delaying his return to Ephesus to help them sort through the, the various problems that they were facing in that church. And, and as a result, Paul penned this letter because the issues he was going to uh, correct, the issues he was going to uh, discuss, they were problems that the church could and needed to address immediately. He wrote that 
these things so that they would know how they should behave, how they should act or conduct themselves in the church. And the reason that that church was struggling and the reason that the American church is struggling is because we have lost sight of the vital importance of the church. We view the church as something that we do on Sunday. Somewhere we go on Sunday. If nothing else comes up. You know, if something comes up, we'll miss. But if nothing else comes up, then we'll be there Sunday. And that's kind of how we view church. We view the church as part of... We, we, we don't view the church as part of who we are. Instead, we view it much of the same way as we view recreation or sports or a recreation center or a book club. It's helpful. I mean, it's nice. We make it if we can. But it's really not a big deal if we miss. But Paul corrects this inept view of the church and this inept view of Scripture. By reminding us of its importance for three reasons. He really gives it three titles. He says, I'm doing this so that you know how you should behave in the household of God. First, the church is the household of God. It's a family. Paul viewed the church as God's family. Not merely a building in which people met. Through salvation, we have become members of the family of God. We're related to him as our father. We're related to one another as sisters and brothers in Christ. And as sisters and brothers in Christ, we're called to love and to care for and put up with and forgive and support one another. Whenever you read through scripture and you come across one of those phrases that says one another That's referring, it's a command for you to fulfill in the context of your local church here at Cambria Baptist. And it creates an amazing reality of Christian fellowship. We think of Ephesians 2 verse 19 where Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see, the church is not simply a meeting. The church is not simply a a gathering for once a week worship. The church is a family. We're called to love one another. We're called to care for one another as a family. We don't simply just tolerate each other. We love and we serve one another. So all that we've covered so far is so much more important than simply ordering and organizing some club or gathering. This describes the way the father wants his family to work. One man said the standards of conduct prescribed are no mere rules of etiquette. They are standards for the household that is none other than God's. The church is vital Because it is God's family. It's the household of God. We're all related to one another through the spirit of God. So we're called to act in love and compassion and in service and humility and care for one another. We're to be present for one another. When you miss, you do a disservice to the other members of this family. We're reminded again that Christianity is not an individual endeavor. Your salvation 
is about much more than you. It's actually a corporate event. Through it, you are made a member of a family, a household of God. So look outside yourself. Stop making your Christianity about you. Instead, serve the church as a member of God's household. Second, it's vitally important because it is the church of God. He says how you're to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This title has lost its significance because we don't really know what it means. That word church, ecclesia, actually means to assemble. It's a community. It stresses the church's unique identity as that of an assembly of people. Who enjoy God's presence and are part of God's family. You know, there's a trend and it began well before COVID to do church in a house or online. But this goes against the very nature of the church. The church is important because by its very title, it is an assembly, a gathering together of God's people. It's the gathering together of God's people for worship and fellowship and spiritual growth and encouragement. A church that does not assemble is by definition not a church. And if you don't assemble with the church, you're not part of the assembly, the church. This idea of assembly reminds us again that the church is not about us. Our personal spiritual growth has a far richer purpose. The growth of the church. See, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. You don't go it alone. Further, this idea of assembly goes far deeper than just showing up. You know, too many are content simply to, you know, sneak in the doors right before church starts, sit in your pew. It's not almost said designated, but it's not designated. You've just designated it for yourself because we're Baptists, right? You come in, you sneak in, you sit in your pew, talk to as few people as possible. And then as soon as it's over, you rush out the door, no fellowship with anybody. And again, talk to as few people as possible. Now, if you, if this is you, You are missing the purpose and the blessing of the church. The church is an assembly in which those assembled are to instruct and interact with one another. See, simply showing up and, you know, punching off your spiritual tab on that spiritual card misses the purpose and the importance of the church. It's an assembly of believers. A further reminder is that this assembly is not about us, is the fact that Paul refers to the assembly as the church of the living God. This phrase emphasizes the importance that God is a living God. This church does not worship a dead God who can do nothing, but a God who is alive And so an awareness of his presence reminds us that we've been forgiven by God and are united with one another and that we will love one another for all eternity. 
before the throne of God. I've said it before, we should learn to get along here because we're going to spend an eternity together there. So let's assemble with one another. Perhaps you might say, well, listen, I'm a private person. I really don't enjoy talking to other people. Listen, as an introvert myself, let me challenge you with something that God has taught me. That's a statement of arrogance. I need to get over myself and serve others. Instead of rushing out, I should rush over to others and interact. Because through that interaction, mutual blessing takes place. You know, for some of us, it's hard, but it is a vital blessing. John Stott said this. When members of a congregation are scattered during most of the week, it's difficult to remain aware of this reality. But when we come together as the church of the living God, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. Further, the fact that this church is the assembly of the living God reminds us that this church does not belong to us. It's not the assembly of us. It's the assembly of the living God. This is not your church or my church. This is God's church. It's his assembly. In fact, Paul told the Ephesian elders when he gathered with them at Miletus on his way, one of his trips, that the church of God was truly his because God purchased it with his own blood. By now, I know you notice every pastoral prayer, every Sunday, I pray, God, help us to remember that this church does not belong to us. You alone purchased it with the blood of your son. Because when we remember that this church does not belong to us, then it's not up to us how it gets structured or what gets done. It's all what God wants because it's his. So, if, God forbid, today on the way home, I get run over by a rogue buggy. And you have to choose a new pastor. My hope and prayer is that you don't choose based on who you like or personality. But that you'll have the spiritual maturity to open First Timothy 3 and say... Let's find that guy. Because that's what God wants. It's God's church, not ours. This means when people do things or minister in ways that you don't necessarily agree with or appreciate or think could be done differently. We need to be reminded, this is not my church. This is God's church. So I'm called to love and care for them. This is the church, the gathering, the assembly of the living God. So in every aspect, the question is not, what would I do? How would I respond? What do I want? But rather, what makes God look as good as he really is? We can't gloss over this issue. As our living God, he stands as our king and our judge. Because he's living, we will stand before him one day and give an account for how we interact with one another 
in the church. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So we ought to be ready for that day. The church is vitally important because it is the assembly, the church of God. Third, we see that the church is vitally important because it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We know what a pillar is. It's that thing that stands and supports a structure. Buttress is not really a term we use much today. In fact, the word that's used here could mean two different things. It could mean foundation, the foundation of the truth, or it could mean a a bulwark or a defense of the truth. If we choose foundation as the translation, then like the pillar, the purpose is to support and uplift the truth. If bulwark or defense is chosen, then the idea is that the church not only supports the truth, but defends the truth. It provides defenses surrounding the gospel for protection, much like battlements surrounded those first century cities. Frankly, I think that the picture is both foundation and protection in this word. John MacArthur says the imagery of these terms for the church would not have been lost on the Ephesians. The impressive temple of the goddess Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was located there in Ephesus. A man named William Barclay gives this account of it. He says one of its features was its pillars. It contained 127 of them, every one of them a gift of a king. All were made of marble and some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. But despite their honorary significance, it was secondary to their very function of holding up the immense structure of the roof. Not only is the church a household of God, the family gathering, not only is this an assembly of God's people, this is the support and the protection of the truth. Specifically, the gospel. This is why it is essential that church leaders be men of specific character. This is why the church cannot afford to select subpar leadership. And this is why both men and women are to conduct themselves properly and appropriately in their proper roles in the church of God. Because nothing less then the truth of God is at stake. In fact, when a church ceases to function rightly, when the church selects unqualified men to leadership, when it fails to acknowledge complementary gender distinction, when its pillars crumble, it can no longer be part of and aid in the proclamation of the truth. In fact, it begins to work contrary to the truth of Scripture and the gospel. When a church fails to follow the word, it destroys its reputation and it cannot stand for truth. The church is the foundation and defender of the truth. Its role in the church, is to demonstrate that truth is is vital and relative. And so, we do that in the way we conduct ourselves, in the way we conform to that truth. 
First, as its foundation, we are to hold firm to the truth. It is to guide everything we do. Every structure is built on the word, on that foundation of truth. Otherwise, we'll collapse under the weight of false beliefs. Secondly, as its pillar, it's to hold it high. It's to defend it. It's to make it seen by the world. A man said, churches that tamper with, misrepresent, depreciate, regulate to secondary place or abandon biblical truth destroy their only reason for existence. And they experience impotence and judgments. You may recall a few weeks ago that I began my sermon with this statement. At times I've been asked how America, how America, our culture and Christianity have arrived at the mess we are in. And I've been blunt in my answer. The fault lies in the pulpit. The church has settled for and followed unqualified men. The church has forgotten what a pastor is to be. And I said this because when a church fails in its foundation, the truth is lost. When a church fails, the gospel suffers. Why is America in the state it's in? It's not in the state it's in because of wicked people. There have always been wicked, depraved people. Not because of the party uh, that you oppose has been in power or is in power. That's not why we're in the state we're in. America is in the state it's in because the church has failed. It's lost sight of its reason for existence. America is in the state it's in because the church has sacrificed the truth of Scripture. It's capitulated to culture because standing for truth is hard. It's unpopular. It's hard to stand against culture and say that genders are different and have different roles. It's hard to stand against culture and say that man is not basically good. It's hard to stand against culture and hold to a biblical sexual ethic. It's hard to stand against culture and state that life is not about ease and comfort. You know, too many churches have allowed unqualified men into the pulpit who don't even know what the Bible says, much less have the ability to stand for it. Too many churches have deacons who are unable to think seriously about serious matters and who care more about pragmatic decisions than about biblical truth. Too many churches are nothing more than sanctified social clubs or more concerned with a political party's platform than with the kingdom of God or more concerned about fun with friends than the glory of God. If Christians really don't believe the Bible, why in the world would the world give it a second thought? The reason that this country is in the state it's in is because the church has failed to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so truth has collapsed. America's in the state it's in because it has cheapened the church. The church is no longer important even to its own members. But this means something. It means that you and I can indeed have an impact on the world around us. Because the answer doesn't lie in the polling place. 
The answer doesn't lie in social justice reform. The answer doesn't lie in convincing everyone you know on social media of the righteousness of your position and the evil of your opponents. The answer lies in your commitment to this assembly and its guarding of the procl- and proclamation of the truth. It lies in your commitment to be a part of this assembly. You see, church should not be optional, but a priority. Your fellowship with and care for one another should extend well beyond Sunday and every other day of the week. For through our commitment to the church, we present the world with hope. God himself. We demonstrate to the world that there's something far greater for them to consider. And that brings joy and happiness and peace. You see, when we discuss doctrine, when we discuss the function of the church, something far greater than simple knowledge is at stake. Truth itself is at stake. The gospel is at stake. This then brings us to the second reason that these biblical guides and structures are important, and that is the great mystery of godliness. Verse 16 tells us, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in the glory. Now this is an interesting section in this text. Paul reminds them of an early church hymn. And this hymn presents the summation of godliness, this religion or piety. It it includes doctrine and life that exemplifies a member of the household and assembly of the living God. Further, Paul describes this godliness as a mystery. As we saw last week, mystery is a significant word in Paul's theology. He mentions it 21 times in his own writings. And as you look at those uses, it reveals that it refers to knowledge that's beyond our understanding, beyond the reach of sinners, but has been graciously revealed through the gospel. And this minute, this mystery, this wonderful revealing of how to please God is great. Again, it's that word mega. And it refers to that sense of supremacy, importance. It's a measurement of superior quality. As Paul presents this ministry in the form of this early hymn, we discover that godliness, this mystery of our devotion, is all about Christ. One man said, Christ is called the mystery of our devotion, not because, not only because he had not been, not been revealed to us, we would not have known him, but also because he transcends our comprehension. We're reminded that salvation is not simply fire insurance. You don't want to go to hell, do you? No, that'd be terrible. Okay, say these words. Jesus, Jesus, amen, amen. Uh, Jesus, uh, save me, save me, amen, amen. Okay, good. That's salvation. No, it's much more than fire insurance. Rather, salvation is the surrendering of our lives wholly and completely to Christ. We behave in our lives and prioritize the church and structure the church in the biblical way because our lives are no longer about ourselves, but about Jesus. And through this hymn, we're reminded that this is no loss when we give Jesus our lives. Because Christ 
is infinitely greater than anything we could ever conceive. The mystery of Jesus is indeed great. And the great mystery of godliness he describes in six phrases in this hymn. Some divide this hymn into two parts. Some of your Bibles may have that, where it's divided kind of into two sections of three. Some divide it into three parts of two, and some just take into each individually. The first phrase is that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. This refers directly to the incarnation of Christ. You know, sometimes we're guilty of not recognizing just how great this actually is. When mankind sinned, God didn't simply start over. Instead, he promised that one day he would become his creation in order to make all things right. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise planned before the beginning of time. Reminded in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Philippians 2.6 and 7 who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. See, God himself marked himself by humility to take on the very form of his creation. Finite, wicked, rebellious, stupid, and undeserving mankind. Jesus left his place as a spirit and confined himself to finite flesh. And he experienced everything that we experience. He was cold, tired, Hungry and sad. He suffered in every way that we do. He didn't come in comfort and ease. He came to a poor, insignificant family. He didn't arrive in the halls of power. He was quite literally born in a barn. All so that you and I could be reconciled to God. So the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Second, we see that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Now this second line is one of the more difficult lines in the hymn to interpret. That word vindicated means to make righteous or to justify. And as we examine and consider the life of Christ, we recognize that he was rejected by his creation. That was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Although he was and is God in the flesh. His own creation subjected him to cruel treatments and an even more cruel death. They mocked his claim that he was God. 
They ridiculed the idea that God would come in this way and they despised Jesus. Ultimately, in anger, they murdered him. But the Spirit justified Jesus' claims. The Spirit proved the veracity of all that Jesus said, and he did this through his resurrection. So Paul tells us in Romans 1, 4, And he, Christ, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The early church consistently regarded the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to be the historical event in which God demonstrated his, his son's vindication. Yet this is not simply a statement of theology. The fact that the spirit vindicated Christ through the resurrection holds important truth for you today. It should impact every area of your life. Because Romans 8.11 tells us, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In Hebrews 5.9, we're told, In being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed Him. You see, because the Spirit vindicated Jesus through the resurrection and proved that He is who He said He is, you and I have the promise of eternal life. This promise should impact every part of our life. If we have the promise of eternity and we believe that promise, well, then we're going to hold the things of this world loosely because eternity is far greater. We'll have peace in the middle of chaos because we understand that eternity is coming. It's far greater. We'll place the priority on the church for it's the gathering of the people of the eternal kingdom. All other aspects of this mortal life will fade. But this gathering and the things we do in and through the church, they last for eternity. That's why it's important. We'll be marked by humility. Because our lives are no longer our own. But belong to the one who is vindicated by the spirit. We'll no longer live for ourselves. But we'll live for the one who grants us eternal life. So the question is. Do you actually believe in the vindicated Christ? Or is this whole church thing. Simply something you do. Punch it off your card for the week. Third, he was seen by angels. Angels helped him in his life. They watched him during his life. They witnessed the resurrection and now they worship him. So we speak of the resurrection. We note that he was witnessed by angels. Matthew 28, 2 to 7. Mark 16, 5 to 8. Luke 24, 4 to 7. John 20, 12 and 13. All tell us that angels witnessed his resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection impacts not just this mortal world, it impacts the spiritual world as well. And through this, we're reminded that the church is so much greater than simply a weekly gathering. The impact of the church is felt into the unseen world. Angels bear witness to the reality of Christ's sacrifice 
for our salvation. First Peter chapter one, 10 to 12 concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he would predict the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He was seen by angels. Fourth, Jesus is proclaimed among the nations. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And through this, we're reminded again that Christianity is not an American thing. America is not the eternal kingdom. Should God tarry, this nation will ultimately fall. But the kingdom will endure. And salvation is proclaimed among all the nations. And we have a role in this. For this reason, we're building our emphasis on missions in this church. We see, fifth, that Jesus is not only proclaimed among the nations, he is also believed on in the world. The church is an outpost of something far greater than simply a weekly gathering. We're an outpost of a kingdom which consists of believers from all over the world. We see this picture in Revelation 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl fill of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from, uh, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and the reign on the earth. We see it again in Revelation 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This means that you have more in common with the Ukrainian believer than with the American of your own political party. This means that you have more in common with the Iraqi Christian than with, your un, than with your unbelieving family member. Look beyond your family, your party, your country. See the worldwide kingdom of God. Jesus is far greater than this country because Jesus fills the world with his glory. Finally, Jesus was taken up into glory or glory is a technical term. It can be a technical term for the dazzling brightness that God's presence encompasses. Really, this line is saying that Jesus was taken up into God's presence, vindicated as king. Christ is proclaimed and believed. And so he rightly now sits on the throne of heaven. 
This refers to far more than simply Jesus' ascension. It refers to his rule and reign as God. As the echoes of the cries, crucify him, were dying out. Jesus was received back into heaven. Those cries were replaced with the anthem sung by thousands upon thousands and thousands and thousands. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Why is the church important? Because it's about our God who is alive. Hebrews tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he holds all the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the in the heavens. Your God is alive. He's on his throne. He's not left it. The finite beings in Lansing or in Washington do not sway the rule of the eternal king. He places them in their positions and he can depose them when he sees fit. The trials of our lives do not stand apart from Jesus' sovereign rule. He's not lost control. He guides and directs all things for his glory and for our good. Your God reigns. Do you believe it? Your God, he's on his eternal throne. Do you act like it? Your God, he's sovereign over all things. Are you resting in his sovereign plan? The structure and actions of the church hold eternal significance. And although we often cheapen the importance of the church, we must recognize that the church is the most vital institution in our world. And so we need to commit ourselves to it afresh. We need to follow the word in all things. You see, the church is the family of God, the assembly of that family and the foundation and defender of the truth. We stand united on the glorious truth of the gospel. God became man. He was vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and is now sitting on a throne as king for all eternity. The church is vital because we serve something far greater than anything this temporal, finite world offers. We serve the eternal king and his everlasting kingdom. And one day we will gather with a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, from all tribes and nations and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in our hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so worthy is the lamb that was slain. And so today as a church, we prioritize the word. We sing the word, we pray the word, we read the word, and we preach the word so that we might go out and live the word until that glorious day comes when we gather with all believers of the word before the word himself. That's why the church is important. So when you wake up on Sunday, and you decide, yeah, I've got other things today. That's what you're missing. You're missing the most vital institution in all of history. Let me give you four so what's. How should this impact you today? 
There are a number of ways, but I'll draw your attention to four. Number one, prioritize the church. Prioritize it. Make this the most important thing in your life. Build your life around this. Be here. Be involved. Number two, live for the gospel first. Not ease or fun or party or politics or job or even family. Live for the gospel first. Number three, this means in our assembly, we should interact with humility. So often in churches, and so often in this church, we don't interact with humility with one another. We get bothered when things aren't done how we want them done. When people don't act the way we want them to act. We fail to interact with humility with one another. We must remember we are the family of God. Number four, serve him. Serve your sovereign God in every part of your life. Serve him because he's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this reason for living. That you've given us something far greater than this temporal finite world that fails in every way. You have given us the privilege of living for an eternal kingdom. So help us not to be swayed and lose sight by all that is going on around us, but instead to focus on the eternal mystery of the gospel and the privilege that you have given us to share that with those around us. Help us to serve you and to live for you. We do love you. In Jesus' name, amen.